Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, feedback after the loss of Kobe Bryant in a horrific helicopter crash. We get an update on the coronavirus in Canada. And is there a gas war in Hamilton? You are the winner. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, all right, we've got a, uh, a couple of clips that we're going to play for you. And uh, these ones uh, specifically in regard to uh, the passing of Kobe Bryant. Akil uh, uh, Augustine, uh, host of The Hangout on NBA TV Canada, was on with The Morning Show at 640 in Toronto. And here's a couple of clips of that. I think the beauty of Kobe was reinvention. I mean, you talk about he went from the number eight to the number 24. Yeah. He went from being, you know, Shaq and Kobe to Kobe and Pow and the gang to um, even after his playing career, he turned into um, an amazing storyteller, a philanthropist, a businessman. For me, his legacy is a master of reinvention, and he has a legacy that uh, also bleeds into life. I think I, I love Kobe as a basketball player, but I love the father that Kobe had become more than anything else because um he really championed, uh, he didn't have a son, and most you know, ex-basketball players would aspire to have a son and to have that, someone to carry on that legacy, but he embraced his daughters, and Gianna was his legacy, and he was going to you know, push her to be in the WNBA, and he yeah. started writing children's books um, for her, his daughter so she'd have something to identify with, and he had his Saturday morning um, children's podcast that he was doing. Kobe really uh, championed his role as a father, and... It was beautiful to see just like uh, just the kind of father he was, right? He was the kind of father that um, you wanted and you wanted to be. And I know that the guys like Chris Paul and um, you know all the players who you see bring their kids to like the post game press conferences and prop them up on their laps in the playoffs, like that comes from watching their peers do amazing things. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, heard weeknights here on CHML and sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Your thoughts on uh, this tragic loss over the weekend? Well, look, these things, um, whether it's Kobe Bryant or whether it's Princess Diana or whether it's Roy Halladay or whether it's JFK Jr., or I mean, pick your... Pick your celebrity that died very suddenly. It, it's all—it's always the same. Yeah. It's always the same feeling that it was. These are people that somehow seemed like they weren't real people. They were yeah. bigger than that, and so when they die, you go, "Wow." Um, hmm. And it, you know, it's it it strikes you because we kind of create these mythological creatures that we they don't really seem like they should die. Yeah. And the reality, though, which always strikes us when this happens, at least it does to me, is a good reminder that, you know what, even the people that are your heroes or the people that you love to watch, they are people. Bingo. They are people, yeah. and they they do die. And, you know, when it happens like this, it's shocking for sure, and it's sad. But it to me, it's just a great reminder. You know, every one of these people, again, they are people, uh, we put them on such a pedestal, and then we're shocked when they do things that let us down, mm-hmm. and they all will, just like we will to people around us. We, you know, people are fallible, and people are, 
it, it just to me it's it's a it's a it's, the story is a bit of a human story here that just reminds us that even the people that we so look up to are just the same as us they just have maybe different skills or different opportunities yeah exactly and reminds us all just how fragile life is for everyone no matter what you do uh, how much you make now that said let me say that the clip that you just played from the nba tv guy it was a great clip and he had great points i would as i'm listening to it though one thing that really struck me, and, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer on this one, is that the idea that we should um, be more impressed or more sad because Kobe Bryant had children and he was dedicated to those children, I, I'm yeah, not are, sure. Aren't we all? <laughs> isn't that kind of the yeah. expectation that yeah. we, I, I don't care if you've got $100 billion or if you're the most famous person on earth, if you've got kids. I don't know that you should be held to a higher level of grief or sorrow because you were actually a good dad. That's my that's my base expectation for people who have kids. Anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, talk about uh, his daughter and her. Uh, obviously, uh, he, he had four daughters, I believe. Uh, aspirations, uh, her very much like her dad. I understand they were on uh, their way to a, a basketball function when this uh, tragedy happened. Uh, talk about her and and how she was sort of the protege. Well, he, he, truly, you know what I thought of today when uh, or yesterday, I guess, when, when I heard this and then you realize that they were on their way to a basketball game is... It is, again, uh, very, very unfortunate and very sad. But we have seen, even in this area, um, thankfully not too often, but we've seen yeah. sports parents with their kids on the way to games. Yeah. Um, the Porto family, his shirt is hanging up at the quad pad. A yep. uh, family up on, I think it was, was it Highway 6, I think, uh, anyway, that were hit by a car and killed. And you think, you know, uh, again, very much... I mean, slightly different. He was flying a charter helicopter. Not everybody does that. But, you know, how many tens of thousands of parents are in their car all the time driving their kids to sporting events? And sadly, this stuff happens now and again. And and once again, I I hate to keep reiterating, we think that somehow it's not supposed to happen to famous people. Mm -hmm. They are people. And it does happen. And these things are tragic. If Kobe Bryant's death and his daughter's death more tragic than another unknown family who dies on the way to a sporting event? Yeah. Uh, no, it's certainly much more newsworthy. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, this stuff happens, yeah. and it's not just sporting events. You could be taking your kid to music lessons or school or you know any number of places. This is what parents do with their kids, and we have to get them around. And, and very, very unfortunately, these things happen sometimes. Uh, fascinating watching the Grammys last night, and uh, ironically enough, uh, in, in the same building that uh, yes. that Kobe played in for for twenty years, uh, and the jersey, and the jerseys, two jerseys of his that were uh, that were raised obviously way back when, uh, were lit through this ceremony, which is just a haunting thought when you think of about what it must have been like to have been in that building uh, that he obviously had command of for a uh, command of for such a long time. Talk about the two jerseys and why two. Well, and I'm trying to even remember this. He came back. He switched at one point, and uh, you know, you know what? I can't even remember now. And I probably it's probably been written in 78 stories already that I missed. But he switched numbers partway through his career, and then they both ended up retired. Uh, now, and, and here's here's the other part about this. And we, my most visceral reaction or, or remembrance, I guess, Scott is when Princess Diana died. 
the things moved from shock to sadness to this level of public um, demand for uh, something to be done and then more than something to be done and then more than something to be done. It, it became extreme to the to the ends and already with with Kobe Bryant you know we've seen people demanding that the NBA logo be changed from the silhouette of Jerry West to the silhouette of Kobe Bryant we've seen them say the championship trophy should be named after him the all-star game should be named after him that both his uniform numbers should be retired across the league and it's mm, this is where these things tend to get a little maudlin and become a little silly. And we have to, I believe, we have to keep some sense of context on this and realism on this and say, yes, this is a very, very sad story that a guy who was beloved by many, many people, not the least of which and much more by his family and his daughter have died. When, when we start going ridiculous with some of this stuff, the story lose to me, it starts losing its, its humanism and its reality and its, its whatever, and just becomes this overdone thing that becomes silly. I, I, in no way should we belittle this or something. He, again, he was a man who, who had a family and who has daughters and a wife who are now missing him and fans who loved him. I don't think we poo-poo that in any way. I just think that we need to kind of, you know, step back a little bit and say, okay, let's, let's, Let's wait a few days before we start demanding that all everything be changed in honor of this guy. Because, look, every time something sad happens to someone, these, these requests, these demands come up. You can't do it for everybody. You can't do it all the time. So should he be honored? Yeah. And, and I think that when you mentioned the Grammy with those lights on his sweaters in that arena yesterday, that was a perfect way to do it. That was one of the ways you can do it that you say very moving, very touching, very relevant and very appropriate. Let's, let's, let's just step back for a second here and let this thing play out. Uh, the, the situation within the, uh, uh, number eight and the number 24, uh, started with the number eight, uh, when he, uh, came to, uh, Los Angeles, the 24 was already taken, so he couldn't have there that. That was his number in high school and then in the second half of his career when it became available, he, he grabbed the number 24. So there, there you go. go. I forgot that. Um, as where does he fit in 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 the realm of basketball players? Where does he fit in? How great was he? Was he that great, or was he just a solid basketball player? No, solid no, career was, played, you know, in, with the same team for twenty years. He was a great player. There's no question about it. He was a great player. Now there, you can, especially Scott. I mean, today, uh, you can end up in a pretty vicious debate with people about this one because I would say that he would be just outside the top 10 all time. Mm-hmm. Other people say he's number two or number three. I mean, most people say Michael Jordan is number one. Um, okay, I would say Michael Jordan or Wilt Chamberlain, because Wilt Chamberlain in his right. time was by far the most dominant player of all time ever. But then you have Magic Johnson, and you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you have Larry Bird, and you have Dr. J, and you, you start going down the list, and yeah. there's a bunch of others. Uh, LeBron James, of course. Um, I have Kobe just outside the top 10, but look, it, he was, regardless of where you put him, he was in the handful or thereabouts of the greatest players of all time. And that's, no. look, no one's going to say that the guy was not 
a great player. And if they are, they're not really paying attention. He right. was. He was. Uh, how do you play for the same team in, in a sports league for 20 years? How does that happen? Um, in any game? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's certainly it's harder these days. But, uh, I mean, there's a couple of ways. First of all, you play in Los Angeles where, I mean, a, a big part of Kobe Bryant's legend is the fact that he played for the L.A. Lakers. I mean, it's hard to argue that the Lakers are not the glamour team of the league, even when they're not playing particularly well. When you've had Kareem and you've had Magic and now you've got LeBron and you've got all these other guys, Jerry West, all these other superstars who have gone through there. So you've got this team that once you get there, rarely does anybody want to leave. The NBA is a league that is that it has no shortage of money, so you've always been able to pay him. And plus, if you're in L.A., there are so many other opportunities around for guys to make their money and that you don't want to necessarily leave that team. And so if you're the star, if you're the player on the team and they want to keep you, chances are you want to stay there and, and there you go. It's a, it's a very interesting story. Last week we were chatting about Derek Jeter going into the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. in baseball. And it's kind of a similar story in a way because Derek Jeter ended up, of course, with the Yankees, who are the glamour team in baseball, always have been. And Derek Jeter's reputation was helped by the fact that he played for the Yankees. When you get that much attention and that much coverage, and you go to the World Series because that team was willing to outspend everybody else. You question, okay, what would have happened if Derek Jeter had been drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks or the San Diego Padres and played his whole career there? Would Derek Jeter be the same? I think the same question can be asked about Kobe Bryant. He was drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, who then traded him for Vlade Divac, and he came to L.A. Well, if Kobe Bryant had played his whole career in Charlotte, would what we're talking about today be different? Mm -hmm. And I think probably indisputably, yes, it would be different. Yeah, high-profile team, no two ways about it. Absolutely. And that... That helps. Look, the Hall of Fame in all leagues are are littered in a good way with players who have played on glamour teams. Other teams, other guys on other teams, obviously make it in. But there is absolutely something beneficial to a guy's career if you can be a great player on one of those teams. Hmm. That is, you are always going to find yourself in the higher echelon, the big pantheon of the greats of all time. That always happens. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. Uh, Want to promote anything for tonight? Yes, we're actually um, uh, today. You know what today is also, in addition to this whole story about Kobe, it's the 75th anniversary mm-hmm. of the liberation of Auschwitz. Yep. Um, there is a man from Hamilton, Burlington guy, Hamilton, Burlington area, lives in both, uh, will be joining us. He spent time in Auschwitz, was, uh, was saved when he was 13 years old, and we'll be talking about that tonight. Scott Radley, Scott Radley Show tonight on CHML and, of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott, as always. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, A uh, press conference held this morning in regard to uh, the coronavirus uh, outbreak. We covered it here live uh, on CHML. And basically what was said was uh, the earlier situation uh, with the gentleman, I believe, in his uh, 50s. Um, He has now been confirmed as having the coronavirus and also a second uh, presumptive case 
is undergoing testing, already had one confirmation uh, through a, a local test, now is going to uh, a second test to confirm that, but uh, they are husband and wife, so obvious why one has it and perhaps the other would as well. Just waiting for confirmation on that second uh, case. Going to play you a couple of clips here. The first one is Dr. Barbara Yaffe, Director of Communi uh, Communicable Disease Control and Associate Medical Officer of Health for Toronto. The two cases are, as you know, um, a married couple who arrived at Pearson International Airport on January 22nd. The first individual arrived at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre on January 23rd by ambulance. The paramedics arrived in appropriate personal protective equipment at the patient's home. Upon arrival, the patient was placed in isolation in a negative pressure room and he remains in stable condition. The second uh, individual is his wife. Uh, she is on home isolation and she is well. Toronto Public Health staff had conducted the testing on her and used appropriate precautions. And here is Dr. Aline Davila. Uh, she's the medical officer of health for the city of Toronto. And you know, we followed up. We're following up with all close contacts. Uh, there are no other household contacts. Uh, so actually, what we're talking about here in this particular case is we have an individual who is uh, staying at home because she's sick. And again, this is good practice for anybody. All right, let's bring in Dr. Sohail Gandhi, President, Ontario Medical Association, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Happy to help. Uh, many have, have, been, have showed concerns about information and making sure you get credible information, not being too alarmist about all of this. Uh, let's start out with what is the risk? What do you want people to know about this uh, coronavirus? Well, I think the most important to rec thing to recognize is that there actually is a plan to deal with the coronavirus. Uh, if you look at and compare to how the government is dealing with it now compared to uh, previous uh, episodes, uh, you know, we've identified the virus at the early stage. All the right precautions have been taken. Uh, people are being isolated appropriately as necessary. And people who shouldn't be isolated, of course, they're not being isolated. So I think the first thing to recognize is that, uh, you know, there there is actually a very good uh, structural plan in place to, to, to look after this. Um, I, I think that it's appropriate when there is a new illness uh, like this particular virus to take all of the steps that have been taken. I think that it's important to, um, to, to recognize, however, that, that while we are doing, while the government will do everything and the, uh, certainly physicians will do everything to help uh, in terms of providing good information about this new illness, I think it's important to recognize that right now uh, the situation is still is stable. Um, I don't believe there's a threat to the public at this point in time. And uh, I believe that uh, I believe that this is something that can be contained. Uh, how does the public have to be concerned over misinformation? Uh, a lot gets on the internet, and and people start to run with it. Uh, what sort of misinformation yeah. do we have to be cautious of? Yeah, and that's something that I, I will tell you that I'm perplexed with, simply because there's misinformation about everything, unfortunately, these days, with respect to healthcare. Uh, I think that the 
ideal uh, thing for people to do. If they're concerned about this and if they want the most up-to-date information, the Ontario government actually has a page on the coronavirus. If you go to Ontario.ca and you look up coronavirus, uh, they actually have a homepage. And I've looked at the page and I think it's quite reasonable. It's uh, updated regularly. It's got the most up-to-date, most factual information on it. I, I would not listen to anything on Facebook or Twitter or any of the other social media sites. I would simply go there if you wanted up-to-date information. Uh, and we have that right in front of us now. And as you said, there is quite a bit of information on there talking about uh, coronaviruses, uh, the, Wu- uh, the Wuhan situation, la- laboratory testing, how Ontario is pre- uh, preparing symptoms, how to protect mm-hmm. yourself, feeling sick after travel. So that's good advice there. Um now, is there anything we know about preventing this uh, uh, from the source? I mean, as we remember from SARS, uh, this was a situation where it, it, trans- it's tr- it was transmitted from uh, animals to humans uh, during consumption. I mean, is there anything we know, anything more we know about the source of this and how perhaps we can prevent this sort of thing? Is, is China doing enough to protect its food chain? So I'm not sure uh, everything that's being done in China. I I follow, of course, what the Ontario government does. I can tell you that one of the things that I tell my own patients about any uh, of these viral illnesses, and it and it truly doesn't matter whether it's coronavirus or uh, some other virus or even or the flu, and that is that your grandmother was right all along, right? You need to wash your hands regularly. No, she was. No, it, it is. It is. It's the same. It, it, you're absolutely correct. A yeah. lot of it's common sense, but go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah wash your hands, especially before eating. Uh, and washing hands, interestingly, seems to be more important for this particular virus than, you know, face masks. Uh, it, it seems that way currently. Uh, if you're coughing, cover your mouth when you cough, you know, cover your mouth when you sneeze, avoid touching your eyes and nose. All that stuff that your grandmother said applies equally well uh, to this particular virus and and it and it's just good basic common sense for any virus. Uh we we understand that this presents flu-like symptoms. How do you know when it's how do you balance this with with uh with uh, uh understanding the flu and and a common cold and a common virus that we may all experience this time of year and something like this. How do you know when it's when when you've you've uh, you've transferred from a normal flu into something much more serious? So the the normal flu is actually far more serious than this virus seems to be at this point in time. And again, I, I totally understand we need to be proactive when it comes to a new virus that comes out. We need to take all the precautions that we're taking, and the government does seem to be doing that, and certainly your physician will as well. I just The perplexity that I have is that this particular virus right now is responsible for 70 or 80 deaths around the world, which is, of course, that's tragic. The normal flu, you know, will kill 3,500 people in Canada in a given flu season, right? So if you're looking for a more serious, you know, if you're looking for something in terms of protection, you get your flu shot every year. Uh, You don't listen to sites that tell you that vaccines are bad. Uh, You get immunized, and then you follow the same precautions. For this particular virus, the biggest single determinator right now would be recent travel to China. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't been to China in the past couple of weeks and you've got flu-like symptoms, uh, you know, you don't have the Wuhan virus. And everyone who who, uh, uh, somehow comes in contact with this virus, 
what does that mean for them? Will everybody become ill? Will everybody become greatly ill? Uh, do, do many survive no. this and move on? Is it is it fatal? No. Uh, and again, in some cases it is, but it's like all viruses. Right. Every virus has stages. So everyone who gets the flu, which of course we're in flu season right now, and that's why I keep bringing that up. Everyone who gets the flu doesn't doesn't die, but a right. certain percentage of people will. And the same will apply to this particular virus. All right. Uh, common sense and some good old-fashioned hand-washing, one of the best ways to protect yourself. Dr. Sohail Gandhi has been with us, President, Ontario Medical Association. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Take care now. You too. All right. How does China handle health, health risks when something like this happens? Uh, should China be doing more to control the spread of such diseases? Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director of China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. It's always a pleasure. Your thoughts on how China is responding uh, responding to the coronavirus? We've heard of uh, you know cities in and around Wuhan that have been literally uh, uh, shut down and quarantined and such. Your thoughts on the way they approach this? Sure. Well, how they approach it is super important. I mean, this is twenty percent of the earth, and that's a lot of the the what needs to be done to deal with this virus will have to be done by China. I think they learned a lot in 2003 with the SARS virus. And just quickly to contrast that, in that case, they basically hit it, denied it, um, put it under under a basket. And then finally, as the rumors began to be proved to be true, they then very late opened up, fired the health minister, put in somebody who knew what he was doing. This time they seem to have learned some of the lessons. However, um, for one thing, this is not SARS. This is a different coronavirus. We don't know the exact characteristics as yet. So that's some sympathy for them uh, as they try and wrestle with. The numbers are staggering. There's 11 million people in, in Wuhan alone. Another 30, 40 or so seem to have been, in effect, quarantined within their city, um, keeping people from going in or out. And China's a place where big cities need food supplies on a pretty regular basis. So there's still going to be some people under government supervision going in and out. They have more hospitals than they used to have, but clearly, clearly where you get huge numbers of people with it, as now the case in Wuhan, they're swamped. And some of the scenes you may have seen of hospitals in, in Wuhan, it's not pretty. To be fair, I'm not sure that they'd be that much better in Canada if we started having a significant chunk of the population either having it or fearing they had it. There's not a lot of empty beds to go at any given time. So I have some sympathy for them. They could do better, I'm sure. Um, And they've now got the head of the World Health Organization there to provide them with some advice. I'd give them maybe about a a C-plus or a B-minus. Over and above on how they're handling it, how do they prevent this? I mean, is China doing enough to keep its food chain safe? You talked about SARS. I was talking to a a doctor recently on the show last week that said they trace that all the way back to uh, a a bat, then a cat, and then consumption by humans. We understand this is from a a market, a food market, a wildlife market. Are, Are they doing enough to keep the food chain safe? I don't think they have done enough. I mean, there's because this has become this is clearly becoming an international problem. It's just not China's problem anymore. It could well be ours. And one of my fears is that, well, developed countries like Canada uh, have fair prospects 
of being able to deal with it if it gets into our society. I worry about some third world countries that will lack that capacity and will be simply overwhelmed. Um, that's, a, that's a big problem. Food safety is a big issue in China generally, and there's been scandals involving um, artificial items that should be not entered that are actually even almost poisonous. But in this instance, the problem comes from, it seems, these wildlife markets. They've shut them all down now. I personally think they shouldn't reopen them. They're terrible if you go into them. There's animals really suffering, and uh, it's a prestige thing. Why do they have to consume How can it be, a, how can, and help me this with the culture, how can it be a prestigious thing when they can carry such disease? I mean, the, we've seen shots of these wildlife markets. I mean, yeah. my goodness, there are people, you know, in, in our society, they wouldn't even go near them. Uh, why, is this, why is this a delicacy there? Well, it is a cultural thing. I mean, deep in the Chinese culture is an idea that exotic things, there's a little bit of that in Canada, but not that much, perhaps, that eating something that almost no one else gets to eat or that is special is seen as, as highly desirable. And that runs pretty deep in, in Chinese societies. In times of famine, people would eat anything. Uh, I get that. Yeah. But this prestige thing, I, I also find... Because the SARS was traced back to a a bat in consumption of a human that 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 ate a cat. Is that is that a cat? That's right. Yes, yeah. the bat bites a cat. It sounds it's almost almost rhymes. So at the end of the day, if yeah. we stop eating bats, cats, and snakes, would this problem be resolved? No. And here's the problem: it would reduce one vector for the disease, uh, but there's also another one, which comes from particularly from southern China, where you have couple hundred million people, perhaps, who live in close proximity to um, both uh, ducks and pigs and uh, and chickens and such. Uh, we're not very much an agricultural people anymore. That's not the case here. But when you have warm, humid places where people are living close to those animals, pigs and ducks, avian um, animals, are right. these are also vectors for the disease. And a lot of the common flu seem to come from those places. So this would perhaps reduce, certainly eliminating the wild food trade would eliminate one of the vectors. There's still going to be, uh, and keep in mind I'm not a doctor, um, that there would still be viruses appearing, uh, new viruses appearing, and some of the regular ones coming back. That's sort of hard-baked into, into, into life, it seems. But, I, but getting rid of wildlife would have to help. Uh, China's selling. Obviously, China's selling itself uh, as a uh, advanced country, advanced nation. I mean, we certainly know what's going on there with tech and such. What does this do for them when something like this comes out? In the sense that they can't protect their food chain. Well, it's a black eye to be sure, and they've made tremendous progress. I saw the other day the life expectancy of the average person in Wuhan is 81 years. That they're edging right up now to developed country life expectancies. And, and they're increasingly affluent. But there's some things that still need attention, and, and, and this is one of them. Uh, they're always going to be, in my opinion, a bit of a petri dish for influenza and, and various diseases, the size of the population, yeah. uh, and the uh, agricultural connections are going to generate some. But I'm optimistic for China in the medium to long run, but I, uh, they, this is, keep in mind, it's been 15 years or more since SARS, uh, but this is a this is a big black eye. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you noticed the price of gas? 
We're getting reports of in and around the Hamilton area, prices as low as 89 cents. 89 cents a liter. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good to be here, Scott. So it's not very often we get to chat about uh, prices going down. It happens, though. What's going on now? Uh, well, look, Scott, it looks uh, we're, we're really on the uh, middle part, I think, of a gas war uh, between a number of stations. Uh, really starting out on the uh, on the mountain uh, here in Hamilton, rather than you know ev- elsewhere. But by the afternoons and evenings, we're seeing prices, as you uh, quite rightly pointed out, uh, down ninety three and in some instances eighty nine. I saw several stations yesterday that were selling for as little as eighty six cents a liter. Now it's a gas war when you know, uh, as I as I do and have for many years, that the wholesale price for gasoline, in other words, for gas stations to actually buy their fuel put it in their tank, it's costing them about a buck to a buck two a liter. So if you're selling it for 93 cents or even worse, 89 cents a liter, you're really taking a, a haircut. And uh, we're talking uh, 10, 11 cents a liter below uh, what it costs you to purchase that gasoline. So it really does suggest that there is a significant gas war. And of course, consumers are the big benefactors. But uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, we haven't seen this in a long time. Last time we saw prices like this uh, was this time last year. Um, in February, we saw average prices in the 96, 97 cent range in February. Uh, and here uh, in Hamilton, we saw prices in some instances that were pushing as low as 79, 78 cents a liter. So although many, many of us have forgotten, uh, it, this seems to happen quite a, quite a lot, especially during the winter months when demand is down. So what what causes this? How does this start? Well, it usually takes one player in the given market or several owned by the same company to decide that they're going to sell gasoline at cost. So in other words, maybe a buck a liter, 99 cents a liter, somewhere around there. And everyone else realizes, you know, they're going to lose market share if they don't match the uh, uh, the big player on the street. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's one. There could be several uh, companies like Husky, Pioneer, uh, even Costco are very aggressive in terms of uh uh, you know, gasoline prices, and they tend not to pass on what's known as a retail margin. In other words, what it costs for you to operate your gas station, to honor credit cards, to pay for the electricity for your pumps, really to uh, pay your staff and overhead. All those things have to come from somewhere. And, you know, most gas stations don't sell enough beef jerky to make up the difference. If I'm looking at a day like today, Scott, where you're selling for 89 cents a liter and it's costing you a buck to a buck two, and you're selling 15,000 liters, that means at the end of the day, you're down 2000 bucks. unless you can find mm. another way to cross-subsidize that, have a rich uncle, a generous bank, or maybe a refiner that's going to look after you in tough periods. Uh, it, you know, whoever starts it, there's always someone in the Hamilton market that's willing uh, to, uh, to match you. And that's not just true of Hamilton. It's true of the entire Niagara region. I would say from uh, West Burlington all the way down to you know Fort Erie and uh, to Niagara Falls, we find extraordinarily competitive players. I also note there's several independent players uh, that are extremely important to the market. Uh, uh, those pesky independents that the big majors are trying to eliminate. Uh, I think here of uh, Gales Gasoline, which does a lot of good work uh, in the community, very locally focused, and uh, uh, more importantly, uh, tends to uh, be uh, you know involved uh, throughout the community. And of course, they are often the target of the big boys, the big fat cats with deep pockets, who make money in other markets across Ontario and across Canada and use that money to cross-subsidize uh, what looks like a, a more intense gas war right here in, uh, in the uh, Greater Toronto-Hamilton area. So is the objective just to get you to keep coming back, or is the objective to get you to go buy more chips and beef jerky as you buy? 
I think it's a little bit of both, but there's another element here. In January, we find that uh, demand for fuel can be down. Refineries run, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 a year. And if demand isn't there, they've got to find a way to liquidate the fuel. And they often find markets like Hamilton, sometimes like London, uh, Chatham, uh, places like St. Thomas. Uh, you know, not markets that you would actually, uh, you know, think of uh, as, as places where you want to do these things. But they, we often see gas prices selling there below cost. And I have a pretty good suspicion that even though the wholesale price may be a buck a litre, if someone's selling for 93 cents, it's likely that their supplier, in this case the refiner, uh, is saying, look, whatever you sell it for, match uh, your friend down the street, your competitor down the street, and we'll cover that seven cents. You won't make any money, but we'll make sure that you don't lose any money. And, mm. you know, by all means, sell all that beef jerky because uh, goodness knows there's great margins on that stuff. So uh, the reason for this happening now is just that it's January and there's uh, an oversupply at this point? Yeah, I think there's an oversupply at this point. I think it's a, it's always a very competitive market here in, Mar- in, in, in uh, Hamilton and uh, the region towards Niagara. Um, all of this, yeah, so Grimsby, St. Catharines, we often see these kind of prices, and they don't just last a few days. They tend to last a few weeks. And as I said last time, last year at this time, Scott, we were paying, you know, as little as 97 cents at the high end. And as, uh, uh, you know, some of us were able to get away with some stations offering for as little as 79 cents between the last week of January and the third week of February. So uh, this is not unusual. If I go back the year before, uh, prices will have been a lot less than they were during the median of that entire year. So it's always a good time. Uh, and again, not everybody's driving. The big driving season doesn't start really kicking in until, uh, well, the Labor, uh, the uh, May 2-4 weekend and doesn't end until really Labor Day is over. So for now, uh, I think it, uh, the world supply of both oil and gasoline are pretty strong. And of course, on that front, we're dealing with uh, the effect in the markets of the coronavirus and uh, perhaps overreaction to what is uh, taking place that is likely to mean these low prices are here to stay until the situation globally begins to settle down. Uh, so less travel this kind of year, uh, this time of year, because of the weather. I mean, we all, we us- yeah. usually hear that you know we're consuming more uh, energy because it's colder and that sort of thing, but not so much for gasoline. Yeah, we do. Uh, but think of it this way: we we, we tend to use a lot more uh, oil, uh, diesel, jet fuel, uh, and heating oil than we do gasoline. Right. Uh, you know, ca- cars are fairly efficient, but we're not driving everywhere because most because we can't. The time of day has an effect on it as well. There's a whole host of reasons why uh, demand in the summer in the winter months is far less. We're past the Christmas period. People aren't shopping. January and February are always relatively dull months. But when it comes to diesel, the prices tend to get higher. The difference this year, and it's a, it's an important one, if you've got you know maybe 10% of all the flights in the world now being canceled or uh, temporary put off temporarily put off as a result of this concern of virus, it means that diesel supplies are going to start to rise dramatically. Jet fuel is pretty much diesel fuel, same thing. It's also a proxy for heating oil that you see in some of the older homes and certainly in eastern Canada, eastern United States. So what we're really seeing here is that, uh, yes, gasoline is dropping on the markets, but they're also substantially dropping uh, on the uh, more important diesel markets. And that's likely to lead uh, to circumstances where, you know, not too far down the road, uh, we could be looking at even cheaper uh, home heating prices. Uh, I'm looking at markets today, uh, whereas I'm seeing gasoline down by about four and a half, five cents a gallon U.S. I'm seeing it's almost, it's over six uh, cents a gallon U.S. on the diesel side. So look for a bit of a relief at a time of the year when you normally 
don't get relief for heating fuel and uh, uh, for uh, for diesel and more importantly for for jet fuel because of what's happening with the coronavirus uh, after effects. Uh, give us an update on, let's switch gears uh, to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Haven't talked about that for a, a few days. Where are we th- with that? Anything more on it, uh, specifically in regard to Indigenous ownership? Uh, do you think this is a real possibility? I mean, it, it seems like uh, uh, this would solve a lot of issues if if we could somehow make this work. What, what are the chances of Indigenous uh, an Indigenous community purchasing this when it eventually is built and for sale? I think it's laudable. I think you, everyone, a good number of people would like to see, certainly see that happen. I would, myself included. I think the problem, however, and I think it's probably been signaled by the Prime Minister and some of his folks, there's a risk. And the risk is, you know, uh, are we going to, you know, Indigenous ownership suddenly puts Indigenous uh, communities against Indigenous communities and others. So it may not be something that we can do at this point. There are substantial risks because, as we know, this uh, project uh, may be building a little bit on the uh, Alberta side, but it hasn't even started on the BC side. Um, and you need those access permits to uh, to be able to set up sh- uh, camp uh, in and around uh, British Columbia. That hasn't happened. And until that happens, we're going to continue to sort of see this thing uh, sort of play itself out. Unfortunately, I think we're still a long way off from seeing this project realized, no matter what the composition of the House of Commons is, no matter what has been said by the company itself until I start to see spades in the ground in and around Vancouver and Burnaby in particular, uh, this thing is still a long way off uh, if it ever gets built. Uh, we've certainly heard uh, many times that uh, all of the Indigenous communities along the route of the twining of the Trans uh, Mountain Pipeline are in agreement. It's others and elders and such that aren't. If you are working towards Indigenous ownership of some sort or a stake in it, is that seen or considered as dividing the Indigenous community? It could, uh, but I think there has to be, this is something that has to be resolved among Indigenous groups and those with interests, apparently not just those along the line, but those who are not. That's in some ways the way in which some of the courts have interpreted this. More importantly, uh, the leadership uh, may very well have proceeded with this democratically and otherwise, but we often find, as we're seeing with uh, uh, the coastal gas link, which has been approved a thousand times over, and the courts have pretty much ordered the RCMP the right to come in and to proceed with building. We still have a handful of elders who suddenly, you know, assume that they're, uh, you know, they're they're uh, the only authority here. A handful of five. So the question I think the federal government has to ask itself is. You know, sooner or later, you have to fish or cut bait. Um, and uh, at this stage, I think uh, bending over backwards has certainly happened to a large extent. What would be very helpful is for the federal government to recognize that we don't make pipelines, we don't build infrastructure based on unanimity, because you'll never have it. And I think realistically, uh, for most who've looked at this, uh, we've twisted ourselves into pretzels. Uh, it would be really wise for the federal government to make it absolutely clear and without having to get into the whole green issue and talk about carbon taxes and emissions, just this, this is right in and of itself because it does, it's right for all the right reasons. It's vital to Canada's economic future. Uh, anybody who doesn't want to stand behind it, please stand aside. And that means if you do want to stand in front of it, you get arrested and get put in jail. It's as simple as that. The federal government has to be absolutely committed to uh, building infrastructure in this country, infrastructure that ironically will go to reduce massive amounts of emissions in China and India, the kind of stuff that's choking the world and uh, failing uh, the, uh, the, uh, the test of, uh, of, dropping, of, of bringing global emissions down. So there's a whole host of reasons why this has to happen. Uh, it's almost uh, silly that we have to make this argument. If we had a stronger leader in this country, uh, we would simply have this thing already built and there would be no questions asked.
Are there uh, what are the downfalls? What are the cons of of having indigenous ownership? Could that get complicated later on, or is this, well, yeah. is this, this seems like a, a, a good idea? Risk. Yeah, I think it's the risk the risk of of uh, internecine battles between indigenous groups uh, and and themselves. I mean, I think that. Uh, the idea, hopefully, is that we all speak with one voice. We see this as important for uh, ownership uh, and, of course, uh, being able to uh, manage responsibly the assets that are there and, more importantly, recognizing uh, that this is a net benefit uh, to Canadians, Indigenous people. Uh, I can see very few negatives here, except for those who are fanatically committed to stopping this. And, uh, unfortunately, there are still some who, who, who will always say no, uh, and who will always uh, say that these are unceded lands. We don't care if the federal government uh, wants to impose its view or uh, it's, it's good for everybody else. We, the few, say no, and until we, the few, say yes, you can't do it. Well, it doesn't work that way in a democracy. It certainly doesn't run that way in a country. And uh, I know that if they're going to build a you know 15-lane highway through my house and my property, it's called the law of eminent domain. I will have to eventually give up. Uh, that because the interest of the many comes well before the select ideal you know, utopian view of a handful of people who suddenly discover they have authority, which they never had to begin with. Uh, if an indigenous group doesn't buy this, who will buy it? When well, does you this? You and I will keep it. When, is, is that what it is? I mean, when <laughs> yeah. does this become saleable? When? At what point? Because the you know, government spent four and a half billion on it, trying to get it done um, off of. Uh, the initial company that wanted to to put it in the ground. Now, who who's going to buy it at a later stage? No private sector uh, wants to buy into this, especially when you have the Mark Carneys of this world uh, being uh, feted by our prime minister, going around saying, "Hey, folks, pull your money out of Canadian energy, Canadian mining, Canadian uh, resources." Uh, that's what these fruitcakes are saying, and they're dangerous ones because they have extreme power. And their idea is simply we should be uh, making sure that all of our pension funds, all of our public pensions uh, do not see themselves invested in uh, any type of activity which would uh, increase Canada's uh, external output of oil. Now, by the way, we're at 4 million, barely exported. We have to put almost 300,000 barrels of that a day on rail, which is dangerous. The Americans of this year, uh, who always like behind us, have less oil than we do. Well, they're going to produce 13.3 million barrels a day. So I think Canadians have to really take their heads, give it a really good shake, because frankly, I think people have no understanding of just how badly we're suffering as a result of this, uh, uh, the negative uh, nabobs of, uh, of, of anti-oil uh, and, and gas and, and energy in this country. And so for that reason, I think for, for most of us, uh, the, the future is bleak, and no one's going to invest in the Trans Mountain Pipeline other than the federal government having to put the money in there, because we've already told people in a, in a rather coincidental way, in a contradictory way, yeah, we want to build oil pipelines, but we want to also stop you from being able to create emissions and doing it. Uh, House of Commons resumes sitting today. Will this be an issue? Nope. No, they're too busy uh, uh, with other issues, which I think are, you know, they're going to, I guess gun legislation is going to be the most important one. Uh, my eyes are rolling because uh, as a member of Parliament, I had to go into that three or four times, important as it was. Uh, I think it's still important that we also look at the issues of, of the day, and the economy is souring, whether people like it or not. I think you listen, talk to most of your listeners out there, they will know that something's wrong, something's amiss. The federal government is spending money it doesn't have. Uh, we have rancor between uh, you know business and, and, and labor. We have uh, divisions in the country, east to west. Uh, we have a, a, a tightening economy, and uh, the outlook is not as bright. I think even the Bank of Canada has finally... Uh, shaking itself out of its stupor uh, and recognize that uh, 
there has not been the kind of robust economy and with growth that they had project, projected. Uh, Scotiabank came out last week and said, by the way, in November, your economy contracted by a third of a percent. It didn't increase by 1.4, 1.5%. So we have, I think, uh, really the need for parliamentarians to, you know, maybe uh, in, in, induce a little bit of uh, cold water on their heads, wake them up a little bit to the real issues that uh, concern Canadians. And yes, yeah, a minority government, uh, a lot can be done. Uh, but I think we also have to recognize that, uh, uh, you know, part of this problem with our economy slowing down is self-inflicted. It's not because of what's happening in the United States. We're quite to the contrary. They're doing very well. And you can't blame it on, you know, what's emerging issues with respect to the uh, recent outbreaks uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the coronavirus uh, coming out of China. Does the minority government help or hurt the pipeline issue? Well, I think it helps it. Uh, in the sense that the Liberals uh, can no longer no longer have the majority to, you know, mess around and dither and do their C48 and their C69, the things that were designed to hurt future uh, pipeline approvals and uh, the delivery of uh, of oil on the West Coast. I, I think with the Conservatives holding uh, the second strongest position in the House, obviously having the strongest voice of all the parties, uh, having won more votes, um, I think there's likelihood that between the Liberals and Conservatives, there's going to be a, an unusual alliance. We certainly didn't see that in the past four years. But if Liberals want to get things done, they're going to have to go to the, and get the Conservatives because we can't have the small fringe parties like the NDP and Green really holding things up, or worse, the bloc whose interest is to destroy the country. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about uh, gas prices in the area of the hammer. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Uh, don't forget, wait two more days. It drops net two cents a litre by uh, by Wednesday. Another, It drops another two by Wednesday. So, yeah, and so if you're paying right now 93 or 89, it'll be 91 and 87 at the same time. So it's net wholesale price at least two cents a litre uh, coming uh, to us on Wednesday. And you heard it first here. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.